All right, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, Maundy Thursday edition, even for the non-believing Charles Cook. Uh, we sometimes give you a weather report, and it is another glorious day here. We only get about 20 or 25 really nice days in New York every year, and they generally tend to come in, you know, April, May, and then sort of early fall. The rest of the time, it's either Houston unbearable or Arctic uh, frozen. But someone who is not going to be going outside, I think, and enjoying any particular athletic activities today is my friend and colleague, Charles Cook, who is nursing what looks to be a very sore and sort of claw-like hand, which has to do with the fact that he was not here yesterday to participate in this podcast. So, Charlie, tell us about your field trip. Well, I hurt my hand in the best possible of ways, which was when I went to the Smith & Wesson factory plant headquarters, what you will, in Springfield, Massachusetts yesterday. It's an imposing building. It was built in, I think, 1940. It looks like a sort of art deco. Um, you'd, I don't know whether you would like it, given your tastes in architecture. I like art deco. You like art deco? It's quite brutal as well, but in, a, in an almost appealing way. And I was given uh, a tour of the factory. It's very kind of them to to offer that, and then uh, I went to the range and shot a lot of their guns, which was was great. Um, I got my injury the fun way. Um, so uh, we gone. You're not going to disagree about some stuff later. Yeah. And this is not a sponsored message, by the way. We're not no, getting paid no, by no. Smith and Wesson to talk <laughs> about this. But one thing Charlie and I do agree on is we both uh, really like Smith and Wesson revolvers. The bigger, the better. But there may be some limits on that. Sure. Well, we fired. I fired the 357 Magnum, which I think is, I think of all the revolvers that are out there, Smith and Wesson's 357 for me is the one. Mm. I mean, it doesn't just look great, but it uh, it feels great. It fires great. It's just, it is what a revolver should be, and I, I think they were pleased yesterday when I told them that. Yes. <laughs> um, and then we moved up to the 44 Magnum. Clint Eastwood gun, obviously, and that was that was pretty fun as well. It's just a slightly, for me, it's just slightly too big around. I don't know how uh, people could carry that as their default uh, weapon. Well, if you've got a bear problem, you know, it's it's, it's a sure. good carry gun. But that. around San Francisco, you know, and and Clint Eastwood used to carry the one with a <laughs> what was it, six inch barrel long? Oh, I think it was bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really not the size of your barrel, it's how you point it. Well, no, absolutely, but still, it's a weapon that he was carrying on him every day. Right, yeah. That was uh, quite, the, quite the ask. And then it was suggested that I try the 500, which... The elephant gun. Right, I'm reliably informed that this can kill big game, effectively. Yeah. And I can see why. I mean, this is a very, very loud gun. And uh, the gentleman who sort of was shooting with me said that when he fires his back in Arizona on the range, everybody comes over to watch and ask him what it is, which you can see, really, given that fire flies out the end when you fire it, and it is extraordinarily loud. And as I learned, having put 10 rounds through it, each of which I think is about $4 each, $5 (laughs) each, um, you wake up the next morning and you're very aware that you fired it, especially if your hand takes most of the most of the uh, 
the force so no that was quite the experience i don't think i'll be buying one for concealed <laughs> carry or even for casual range plinking i would soon bankrupt myself but what a what a piece of engineering and i and i learned that, that that's the only uh, production revolver of its size they're sort of custom ones or limited uh, you know r- limited production uh, revolvers that are built but this is a this is a production line revolver so there must be a market for them well, this, uh, uh, the company that makes Desert Eagle, don't they make a 50 revolver like that called the BFR, which stands for Big Revolver? <laughs> I, don't, I, I, read, I read this morning, actually, when I was looking up what had done this to my hand, that this was the, the only production revolver of its size, so maybe... Yeah. I don't know if the 550 are exactly comparable uh, rounds, but um, yeah, huge and uh, sort of fun to shoot. Did you shoot the one with the, uh, with the muzzle uh, flash suppressor on the end so you didn't set the range on fire, or...? To be honest with you, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not. Uh, well, I'm not an expert in firearms at all. I'm, it's law, the constitution, the history of of it. Philosophically, is my area. I'm learning a little more, but I focus very much on on pistols. So revolvers are an area I'd love to get into, but I I don't know. Now Springfield used to be the capital of of firearms production in the United States, did it not? Right. Well, indeed, the whole East Coast used to be the arsenal of not just the United States, but for a period, the world. And a lot of the manufacturers have now moved or transferred in part down south. There's a significant amount of pressure coming from southern governors, especially, to to, to transfer operations into more friendly territory. Now, when they say more friendly territory, I think... Uh, they mean two things. The first is that, by and large, Southerners and Southern laws are more hospitable toward gun manufacturers. It is somewhat unreasonable, in my view, for, say, the state of New York to lord Remington as uh, a great provider of jobs, union jobs at Remington, and profits for Massachusetts to be proud of Smith & Wesson in Springfield, um, and yet to make many of its products illegal. Yes, you know, that's a that's a double standard that is is ugly. Um, but when they, when they say a better business environment, some of that's on the level, some of that is not. Uh, you know, mo- move down here, we have lower corporate tax rates. Great. Move down here, we have right to work. Great. Move down here, we have a better business environment in a regulatory sense. Great. Move down here and you won't pay any taxes for 10 years. It bothers me a little bit, I must confess. But nonetheless, that is what Texas and Alabama and Mississippi have been, have been trying, and South Carolina and North Carolina have been trying to do, and reasonably effectively. Yeah, well, New York does the same thing, though, of course, for new businesses that locate here. It's, uh, it's no state or local taxes at all for 10 years, right? For the Was it the New York Innovation Program? Oh, it's don't get me wrong. Like that's that. right. I, I'm not suggesting that this is just a southern thing, but oh, I'm no, saying with yeah. gun manufacturers in particular... Sure. Um, you know, this is the South has been taking much of the Northeast's prominence. Yeah, is Springfield Armor still based in Springfield, or do they manufacture somewhere else now? Do you know? I don't know. If I'm honest, I can find out. Because they also uh, sort of make make wonderful guns. Well, I guess the other question is how how did you shoot? Actually, very well. I was surprised. It's a reasonably new shooter, and it was odd. I started off with um, an M and P. Uh, in nine uh, in twenty two two sorry long and I shot completely terribly. <laughs> I kept <laughs> apologizing to the range master. I'm sorry, I don't know what's happening. It's way off to the left, and I thought, well, this is fun. Nobody here is judging me. It was a fun day, and uh, it's just going to be one of those days. But then they gave me the uh, M and P nine millimeter, actually the VTAC, which is the 
which is a sort of souped up one, has a slightly lighter trigger pull, which is about the same as that on the short reset trigger on my SIG. And bang, you know, bullseyes, or at least all within the, the, the middle circle. Yeah. And then we moved, and once I got used to the revolver, I shot pretty well, and I shot the... I mean, I didn't shoot the 500 pretty well because it's crazy. <laughs> but I shot the 357 and the 44, and then we played with some ARs, and I, I shot those surprisingly well, actually, for someone who really has no experience with ARs. And I really, really want an AR, but the state of Connecticut has decided that any weapon with cosmetic features, and that is literally the law, because there's no ban on, say, a 308 bolt action rifle. There's right. no there's no ban on centerfire rifles that fire two two three or five fifty six cartridges, it's just if it has a folding or a telescopic stock, if it has a flash suppressor, if it has a barrel shroud, um, they've made it illegal uh, for me to have one. So that will have to wait until the inevitable move to the wilds. Well, I thought it was on the news the other day, so somebody has introduced a New York State legal AR, yes. which looks like a camel. And then there's a Connecticut legal one too, isn't there? From well, th- so those are two different things. Yeah. The New York legal uh, AR-15 basically looks like a paintball gun because mm. they've taken <laughs> off all of the features that make ARs attractive. It's no longer customizable. It no longer has any rails. It no longer has a pistol grip. It no longer has a you know an adjustable stock. It no longer has a Flash suppressor, and so it's it's a center fired, I think, two two three slash five fifty six AR without any of the AR virtues, right. but that is nonetheless more like an AR than say a bolt action rifle is. Gotcha. So that's that's the New York trick. In Connecticut, they wrote the law to such a, a strict degree after Newtown that basically the only thing that is legal is now the AR uh, with a two two in a 2.2 caliber. Okay. So you can have, uh, you know, the AR that you could buy in Texas with all of the features that I've just described, but only in 2.2. So I, I, I don't know the exact details of it, but I think what happened was that New York focused on the variables and made no mention of the caliber. And I think Connecticut said, here, is the, here are the centerfire rifles that you can have. Okay. And so they, they came at it the other way around. So there's no real way... Um, around it in Connecticut. Well, in a sense... But I tell you what, having yeah. fired the 2-2 yesterday, and I thought it would be a bit useless, it's still a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I might pick one of those. Though. Well, you know, in a sense, although I don't support either regulatory approach, it makes a lot more sense to focus on calibers, oh, which yeah, has sure. to do with the actual power of the gun. You know, the uh, cosmetic uh, obsessions of the gun regulators always made me laugh because I used to own a Browning automatic rifle. Which um, I don't know if you know the BAR, but um, it's a very traditional-looking gun. You know, sure. it's walnut and a stock and, and all that sort of stuff. But it's a semi-automatic rifle in a hunting caliber, as opposed right. to a little, you know, two twenty-three. So you can get this, you know, thing in a three hundred eight or some, you know, enormous, uh, you know, moose shooting caliber. A much, much, much more dangerous gun than any of these little, oh. you know, plinker AR type things. And, that, and that's the great joke of the whole thing. I mean, obviously, if you were going to focus in on uh, philosophical and legal questions to one side. If you were going to focus in on on gun control, then you would go after handguns yeah. because disproportionately handguns are used in both suicides and in murders. It's six and seven thousand uh, of the murders every year in this country that are committed with guns are committed with handguns. Rifles of all sorts 
are only between 300 and 400. And the use of so-called assault weapons within that category is so tiny that it's not even counted by the FBI. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to, to start in on it at all is silly. But again, if, as you say, if you're going to start in on it, it is preposterous that, you know, once you've limited the magazine size, which is, is another thing that the gun controllers like to do, that in Connecticut you can buy a 308 bolt action rifle or in fact a 308 semi-automatic rifle yeah. with a 10 round magazine that can take down a stag but you can't buy the same thing if it happens to have a pistol grip or or a stock that you know in many ways and I, and I don't like the way gun controllers make this argument rather than going to the heart of it which is a question of liberty and a question of prudence and a question of good law but one of the reasons that ARs have those features is because they make them easier to shoot for women for example yeah. and for smaller people I mean it's much more difficult to fire a big hunting rifle uh, for a woman than it is to fire a light AR with almost no recoil yeah. and you know given that they're used in almost no murders it does seem preposterous but that is the law and I'm certainly not going to find myself in uh, prison on a felony <laughs> charge for buying or importing a weapon that uh, I'm not allowed to so for the moment I shall uh, follow the rule of law right yeah because if you import one you might get deported so that's a whole different <laughs> yeah. thing Although, you know, I know what you want to move on to with that uh, attempt at a segue there, but... Um, <laughs> but you're not going to let me. <laughs> not, not just quite yet. Well, just one last point on this is that, um, you know, the gun controllers always say, we don't want to take away your granddad's deer rifle. We only want to go after these dangerous guns. And out of all the weapons I, I've owned, you know, the deer rifles and the game rifles are by far the most dangerous weapons. Yeah. I mean, as opposed to a little, you know, twenty two or two twenty three or something well, like my, that. Well, my SIG is far more dangerous if I want to commit a crime or a mass shooting than an AR-15 is. I mean, you can't conceal the AR-15. Now, presuming that you're... Presuming that people follow the law, which they don't, but the, but the laws being passed and the people who pass them presume that their laws are going to make a difference. Right. So let's put a, an AR-15 next to my SIG, both with 10 rounds in them, which is the Connecticut standard. Which one am I more likely to take into uh, a crime scene or into a mass shooting? obviously the SIG because I can conceal it right. I can put it in a bag I can tuck it into my trousers I can you know put it in a holster and then wear a jacket it would be pretty difficult for me to get a, an AR-15 there and and then you come to the question well okay but Charlie people don't obey the laws and then you say well exactly <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah you, if you want to shoot somewhere up then you can then you can just walk in with it with an AR-15, but then you're not worrying about the magazine size or whether it's legal in the state anyway. And then we come back to the problem of there are 350 million guns. Trying to micromanage them in this way is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I have a, um, a very, very old shotgun that I inherited from my uh, great-grandfather, which is not within the city limits of New York, in case anyone's <laughs> listening. But, uh, yeah, it's never been fired as far as, I mean, not in the last 50 years as far as I know. But it's got some suspicious notches carved into the uh, stock. And where, you know, where my great-grandfather lived, there was not, you know, a lot of deer hunting or anything out there. It was kind of way out in the, uh, you know, in the boonies of, uh, of West Texas. So I'm always a little curious about what those, uh, what those stand for. But yeah, a heck of a difficult thing to uh, conceal. But of course awkward segue, there are places in this country where people aren't bothering to conceal their guns. My segue was so much better. Yeah, your segue really was better, but I wasn't done talking about <laughs> talking about guns yet at that point. So, back to Clark County, Nevada, where for my sins I have spent some time, although largely in uh, Las Vegas, and uh, 
and on the highways between Las Vegas and the places where uh, prostitution is legal, not because I was uh, partaking, but because I wrote a story about it for the magazine some time back when I was out in Vegas for the porn Oscars, which was one of the more depressing spectacles I've (laughs) ever been to in my life. Uh, You know, I'm not an especially prudish guy, but, uh, you know, even at my fairly uh, libertine standards of, of being offended, well, I wasn't offended, I was just sort of dismayed, I guess. So, back to Nevada. You had a piece uh, published yesterday, I believe, Absolutely. Media, in which you once again took issue with my view on the matter of uh, Clive and Bundy and uh, his armed but so far nonviolent standoff with the uh, Bureau of Land Management and various other feds. And as I recall, the word indefensible played into your uh, piece. So let's hear why it's indefensible and convince me one more time why I'm wrong. Well, as anyone who follows me on Twitter will know, I am today two things that I am not usually. One is a rhino, Tory, King George loving (laughs) stooge of the state. And the second is, uh, and not unrelated, is a, a favorite of the MSNBC crowd. Uh, I think yesterday MSNBC's Steve Bannon, is that his name, praised me, oh which, which gave me real pause. But I do nonetheless stand by my, <laughs> my position here. And, and that is that Bundy has been treated badly by the federal government. His predicament is the product of big government, unresponsive government, ham-fisted government. It is also the product of bad homesteading in the West, where the federal government owns far too much of the land. And yes, you're right when you say, therefore, the people own the land, but the people also own the helicopters and the missiles in this country, and yet they are under the jurisdiction and the control of the government. And the theory, of course, is that we control that government and therefore it can impose its rules uh, on us. Now, my view here is that Bundy has a great moral case and an interesting story, and should be the product, uh, or rather the recipient, of a great deal of sympathy, and that resistance to the federal government in this case um, is acceptable insofar as it doesn't seek just to nullify the law. Now, for those who have said, well, where would you have been in 1776? I think my attitude is not un-American or un-libertarian, but is really that of John Adams, who said in the early 1770s that he was for the law and that that was what guided him. And Adams famously, of course, defended the British soldiers after the Boston Massacre because the law was more important than the mob, but declined to join Sam Adams in calling for revolution up until the point at which the regime, not the law in question, not a law, not the T law, not the taxes, not this duty or that duty, um, but the regime in question became untenable. And then he sided with Adams and Jefferson, we all know the rest of the history, um, in calling for its absolute overthrow. Now, my objection to you and to John Hinderaker, both of whom I thought wrote moving and, and, and uh, convincing to appoint pieces about the moral case, is that Hinderaker, for example, says, well, 
Bundy has a really great moral case but not a legal leg to stand on, which seems to be important, that distinction. And you quoted George Washington and Gandhi, both of whom brought down the regimes completely mm. and would have been hanged if they had failed. Now, well, I'm probably not Gandhi. Well, possibly not Gandhi. He he, Winston Churchill did make some comments, but well, well, let's not go Half down that road. Half naked Indian fakir. But e- right. But either way, you did uh, draw on those two figures, and they both did manage to bring down the entire regime. Mm. And my point is that it is acceptable if the regime of a nation becomes so. Uh, tyrannical and so capricious to call for a revolution and to fight for that revolution but that if we accept that Bundy has such a good and moving case that he can just opt out of the law and force the government to back down and and just as a digression here on this this wasn't civil disobedience in the classic sense was it civil disobedience is where you say I'm not going to go along with the regime and then you deal with the consequences of it but Bundy has won this right Bundy has essentially got the federal government at least for now to say all right all right we're not going to enforce the law he's not protesting for a change he won his particular and that's what he set out to do so my point is if Bundy can opt out because he's right let's presume for the sake of argument that he's right here then why can't I opt out because I'm right about the dis- you know about assault weapons? We just had this discussion in Connecticut. Mm. I think I'm absolutely right. I think the state of Connecticut is completely wrong. Why can't progressives opt out of the laws that they think they're right about? Why can't everybody opt out? Because you can't run a society like that. Although I note that the great majority of your neighbors in Connecticut are in fact opting out sure. of the state's laws and refusing and, to comply with them. Right. And I think that the law Connecticut is stupid. Connecticut seems to be running just fine that well, way. Well, I think that the law is a stupid one. And I think that the government should look at its clearly being unworkable, Irish democracy, I think it's called, and they should change the law. And I would hope that its being unworkable would lead to more protest and more pressure. At the same time, I don't deny that if a uh, Connecticut state officer were to prosecute those people, that they are in violation of the law and that they have to deal with the consequences of their actions. There's a great... um, uh, proverb that Dan Foster taught me, which is, I think, an old Spanish proverb, which is, take what you want, but pay for it. Yeah. Now, my my problem here is not with uh, is with the law, but it's not with the law being enforced. It was duly enacted, and I would hope it would be struck down, but again, we have courts to do that. Um, if somebody refuses to comply with it, and they think that that is worth it, and worth their time and their effort, then I'd be fine with them being prosecuted in the same way as I would be greatly um, enamoured of Bundy were he to go to prison for this. But what conservatives want in this case and have suggested well, in some cases explicitly in other cases by implication is they firstly want Bundy to win and they want the federal government to say fine, we'll ignore this law and or they want a shooting match. Now I'm not suggesting you want a shooting match but there has been around the edges this suggestion that well maybe we will fight the government over this law and if you're going to call for a revolution then call for a revolution but don't justify selective uh, obedience to the law. Yeah well, I think where our disagreement here is that um, you and I are essentially talking about different things. So you're looking at this and saying what do we make out of this case as a matter of general principle. You know, what can we take away from this and say we can generalize this across our politics? And I don't think I would disagree with you on that. As I said, you know, in my in my piece on that, that uh, this is not something that you probably want to take as a precedent for general action. 
But I think if you're looking at it in terms of what do we make of this thing that actually did happen? There's a specific thing that happened. Yeah, of course the law is on the other side. But um, but it's an act that draws attention to uh, not, not just a legal situation, but a political situation that needs to have attention drawn to it. And the point of civil disobedience isn't to go to jail necessarily, it's to provoke a reaction from the authorities that sheds some light on the underlying situation. Now Bundy, of course, is an imperfect uh, exemplar of this for a lot of ways. One, because he's making this crackpot legal argument that I don't, I don't buy at all. So if I were, you know, taking my own first principles and back constructing, you know, a, a good case of, of you know, the example I would like to see, it wouldn't be this one, but this is the one that it actually has. So what I'm trying to do here, I think, is take this actual thing that's going on in the world and use it to uh, illustrate, you know, something that's important worth talking about. Now, the idea that Bundy has won this, I think, is uh, premature. I feel a little like the... Uh, Chinese premier asked in the 80s what he thought about the French Revolution, and he said, uh, too soon to tell. Yeah. But, because um, I don't think he's won this. I think he's going to end up shot or in prison or, or, or one of these things because the government is not going to take this lying down. Where I think we do disagree, though, is this. I think there is lots of room for this sort of civil disobedience short of calling for revolution. Um, now, but hang again, on, hang on, hang on. How do you square that with saying it shouldn't be a general principle? I mean, it strikes me that's a huge concession to say, well, yes, this case, but it shouldn't be a general principle. But then you say, but there's a lot of room for this sort of thing, and it, and, it, and it's virtuous. Well, yeah, I do think it's virtuous. Um, and, you know, as you put it in your piece, uh, you, you said that, well, I think Kevin is setting himself up as the arbiter for the, the person who makes decisions about when this is uh, acceptable and when it isn't. And to some extent, you're right. You know, I think these are always case by case, matter of prudence, matter of proportion. But isn't that precisely what we rail about as, as libertarians? That you can't entrust people to enforce or, or judge or, or arbitrate the laws, that it's a nation of laws and not of men, and that includes you. Much as I like your judgment on many, many things. <laughs> yes, I mean, yes, don't yes. get me wrong. If we, were yeah. to, if we were to institute a benevolent dictatorship, you would be high up on my list of people to oversee it. But that's besides yeah, well, the point. You're about, country, to, you're about to be involved in one of those come August. But uh, so a um, little inside joke there. Sorry. <laughs> well, okay, here's, here's what I'd say about that. Um, again, you're, what you're doing here is saying... Um, Let's compare the ideal version of my view of things with the non-ideal version of your view of things. So if we're talking, you know, ideal version to ideal version, yeah, we'd like to have this thing we call the uh, rule of law, where we have a, you know, set of general rules that are as binding on the government as they are on the citizens and, uh, and all that good stuff. Now, I think it's hard to look at even something, you know, as undramatic as the history of Obamacare. It's hard to look at the actions of the IRS and their, you know, flagrant... Uh, abuse of their power, disregard for the Hatch Act, other things like that. The government's utter unwillingness to do things like police the borders, uh, you know, to actually fulfill its responsibilities and say that we're operating under that sort of rule of law. So in a case where you have, as, as my friend Andy McCarthy pointed out yesterday, uh, the enforcement of laws in a way that is uh, not only selective and arbitrary, but very closely aligned with the political interests of the people that we're supposed to be entrusting as neutral arbiters of what the law is, it's hard for me to accept that we really have 
uh, a real meaningful uh, rule of law in that case. So not, to, and this may seem like an inflammatory phrase, but what you're calling for really amounts to unilateral disarmament. No, what I'm suggesting is that if your argument is that because the regime under which we live is imperfect, which it is, and because the rule of law is not applied consistently, which it's not, and because um, the government is full of flawed men and there is some political and uh, legal collusion, then Bundy is somehow entitled to some leeway of his own. And my suggestion is, okay, but then so is absolutely everybody else. It's not as if the situation you just described of arbitrary and capricious law doesn't apply in almost every area. It's not limited to the Bureau of Land Management. And I'm asking, what is there for to stop somebody on the left breaking the law routinely, in fact everybody breaking the law routinely because we live under this regime. I mean if we live under this regime that is is so far away from the standard that would be necessary for acquiescence, then why is the right to revolt limited to the people of uh, which you approve? Well, I don't I don't think that it is. And again, I think that it's uh it's more uh a question of taking things on a, on a case-by-case basis than trying to articulate some general principle from it. Although one of the things I was talking about yesterday, which I think is kind of uh, amusing, is that there are a lot of people on the left, including people I've heard from, who are just you know, livid about this situation. How dare this guy think he can just break the law? But in the case of, say, Edward Snowden sure. and WikiLeaks and all that, they take precisely the opposite view. And so much of this comes down to uh, cultural matters, where people on the left look at someone like Bundy and I uh, can't imagine anyone thinking that's acceptable. People on the right look at someone like Snowden, can't imagine thinking that's acceptable. So, yeah, I mean, there is, there is, we always have to get to the question of the, of the underlying we issue. We do, because, because what you've just said is absolutely true, but that is ultimately a two-quoque argument. Well, that's, no, no, well you do it. You, you know, you, you actually, endorse it. Actually, no, what I'm trying to take from this is the opposite of a two-quique argument. So I was corresponding with uh, you know, one of my non-friends on the uh, left yesterday about this very thing, and he said... Well, you know, Snowden was committing an act that was illegal as an act of protest against a government that's clearly violating its constitutional duties and the rights Mm -hmm. of its citizens and all this, whereas Bundy is just some hillbilly grifter who's trying not to pay his, his range fees. And even if you take that argument, it's still the same government. No, but it is the same government. But there is a difference, I think, between... Dis, uh, disobeying the orders of a government that is violating a constitution that sits above it. I'm not, by the way, endorsing this view for Edward Snowden. I'm not sure what I think about Edward Snowden. I've, this has been a long time I've been thinking about this, and I just can't work out what I think. So I'm going to throw my hands up and say that I'm useless on this question. But as a principle here, there is a difference, for example, between a citizen saying, I will not comply with you removing my firearms because the Constitution sits above whatever order you've been given. And somebody saying, for example, I am not going to obey the speed limit because it is uh, too low. And the difference is that although one might not like either, the states clearly have the plenary powers to set the speed limit and the government does not have the authority to take away the guns. So, you know, it does matter. I'm not saying your friend on the left is consistent, but it does matter that Edward Snowden ostensibly acted in order to protect the Fourth Amendment, but that Bundy, unless you're arguing that Bundy was upholding the Constitution with his behaviour, it does matter that he was just breaking the law, right? Well, again, I think you're making 
a legal argument here, and I'm not. So, uh, you know, as, as a matter of law, as a matter of uh, legal and constitutional process, no doubt you are uh, correct. And uh, again, not to make a facile or unwarranted comparison, but just to, to illustrate the point, you know, the people who were abetting and harboring fugitive slaves in the 19th century clearly were violating the law as well. True. And there was a constitution that stood above that law and, True. of course, endorsed it. So there are times when this sort of thing is called for. So I don't think there's any way for us to get away from the discussion of whether this is one of those times. And uh, we're, we're running a little long here, so I'll maybe get close to wrapping this up. But um, one thing you said earlier that I think I want to address, which is, no, I don't think the fact that the government is imperfect and staffed by imperfect men and has defective institutions, as all human institutions are, uh, as we'll be thinking about tomorrow on Good Friday, uh, even those of us who are, who are not believers. I've told you I'm an atheist who believes in original sin. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm with you on this. But there's a difference between a government which is imperfect, as they all are, and a government which is working in a way that is, I think, uh, malicious. I think it's difficult to look at Lerner in the IRS case. I think it's difficult to look at Eric Holder. I think it's difficult to look at the NSA and come away with uh, an argument that this is just you know human imperfection rid at the federal level. I think you're talking about something else there. You know, I'm kind of with you on the issue of Snowden that I've gone you know back and forth on this sort of thing. And I think the decision that I've come to on it is that um, you know Snowden and Assange and Manning and those guys all strike me as fairly creepy and probably acting out of motives that I don't necessarily share. But I think in the long run what they did is going to leave the country better off, and I'm glad that it happened. Right, and this is, just to finish on this note about Edward Snowden, I've never understood the argument that discussion of the NSA and discussion of Edward Snowden have to be inextricable. I mean, Edward Snowden could have been the best human being that had ever lived, or the worst. He could have got to Russia and massacred 10,000 people, and yet we would still be able to benefit from what it is that he announced. He could have committed treason and been executed for it, or he could have been given you know, the presidential uh, medal of whatever it is, freedom, and he would nonetheless have provided precisely the same information and sparked precisely the same debates. And one thing this morning, maybe we should talk about this uh, in the future, uh, is watching the Snowden champions trip over themselves to pretend that his behavior in Russia with Vladimir Putin is anything other than abhorrent is bizarre because it, it doesn't change the underlying debate about surveillance and about the American security state one whit. No, no. Uh, one thing I want, do want to say in closing is that uh, occasionally I am uh, sad that these are only audio podcasts and not video podcasts. And I am a little bit today for this reason, because you were talking about you being a, you know, Tory, rhino, sellout, uh, you know, newly suburban type conservative. And I note today it's an American flag tie, a Burberry sweater and boat shoes. So we've and got my American flag belt. And America, so we've got something patriotic, something English, and uh, something from the uh, yacht club. So uh, you are you are definitely wearing the uh, the look that you're being accused of. I contain multitudes. Kevin. <laughs> yes, indeed you do. All right, folks, we will talk to you tomorrow, and uh, see you then. Actually, I thought before we went, oh. I would list my five favorite salon columns of the last week. Please do. <laughs>